Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's standalone episode, we'll discuss some of the ways the book of Ezekiel shows up in broader evangelical culture, from organic farms to doomsday prophets. Having studied a good chunk of the book so far on the show, we'll think through then what these approaches to Ezekiel are missing and offer some healthier alternatives. The last time we had an episode here a couple weeks ago, I kind of had this moment realizing we've been missing out on one of the goals of this podcast, and that's to to help us live out our lives as Christians in the 21st century in light of what we're equipped with from the neglected parts of the Bible. Now, we've been doing that as we go, as we look at a chapter or chunk of the book of Ezekiel, and then we reflect on some implications for the way we think, the way we live today, but there's not been a ton of cultural engagement. There's not been a lot of um, reflection on the things we actually interact with and encounter on a weekly basis. So the last episode, we talked about red-letter Bibles, a specific format of the Bible that we come across all the time if we don't already own a couple. And we asked the questions, why do these kinds of Bibles actually exist? What do they assume And what effect do they have on us? We were connecting this piece of Christian culture with the sort of broader conviction of the rebind. But this week is a chance to dive into that cultural engagement discussion, specifically when it comes to Ezekiel. What sorts of artifacts, what sort of uh, bumper stickers or Bible study books get bought that have something to do with Ezekiel? And why do they actually exist? What do they assume? What effect do they have on us, maybe? And having walked through the first 14 or so chapters of Ezekiel already, I thought we'd have enough under our belts to come and, well, come to some educated conclusions about what we find. So there's not actually a ton out there to analyze because, well... Ezekiel isn't exactly the best-selling book of the Bible. It's generally pretty avoided, which is why we're focusing on it on the rebind in the first place. But there are two ways that I've seen the book of Ezekiel pop up in our our Twitter feeds and and markets, and um, I thought it would be worth exploring those for today. So they have to do with uh, Food for Life's brand of bread known as Ezekiel 4-9 Bread or just Ezekiel bread, if you follow your search engine's suggested entry. And then the other is the way that Ezekiel gets roped into uh, the general apocalypticism that generally spikes around political and international times of tension. All right, so let's not jump right into doomsday. Let's let's start with the organic food, Ezekiel bread. Uh, The first time I had heard about this was actually from my dad, who's a food scientist, and he works in the realm of food safety. He'd been keeping up with the podcast here around the time I was covering Ezekiel chapter 4, and we were talking one day, and he said, hey, did you know there's actually this line of bread products out there? He works in a a, a wheat company, a milling company, and it's based off of a verse in Ezekiel 4. And it's pretty crazy how opposite it is to what Ezekiel is actually talking about, so you might want to check it out. And so sure enough, 
if you search for Ezekiel bread or you go to Food for Life's website and you click on Ezekiel 4-9 story, you'll come to a page that reads, quote, Ezekiel 4-9, bread and better. Ezekiel 4-9 products are crafted in the likeness of the Holy Scripture verse Ezekiel 4-9 to ensure unrivaled, honest nutrition and pure, delicious flavors. And then it quotes the verse here. Take also unto thee wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and spelt and put them in one vessel. Ezekiel 4.9. It's this special, unique combination of six grains and legumes that harvests benefits beyond what we normally expect from our breads, pastas, cereals, and other foods. End quote. Then it goes on to talk about all the health benefits of this stuff and how delicious it is. But since I'm starting to come off as just a hater of this food company for no reason, let me cut to the point of this. If you remember what we talked about when we looked at Ezekiel chapter 4, Ezekiel is commanded to take up this diet as part of a public curse on the nation of Israel. This is not a Whole30 food plan from heaven. It's a recipe from hell. And we're putting it in bold font on our bread packaging as proof of why you should eat it. So let, let me just go back and read part of that chapter for you, since, since all it takes is just reading the actual chapter to see how crazy this advertising is. So Ezekiel 4 shows us four sign acts or, or acted out prophecies of Ezekiel that warn the nation of God's justice coming against them the, the destruction that would, would happen to the city of Jerusalem. And each of these four sign acts, it, it amps up as you go along one more notch from the previous one. At first, Ezekiel makes a brick model of the city of Jerusalem. He, he draws it on the brick, and then he acts out a siege coming against it. But then in the next sign act, the second one, he actually gets personally involved. His very body and movements are part of the prophecy against this guilty group of people. He's homebound. He's tied up, laying on the floor for days and months and even over a year each day, representing a year in the defeat and loss of freedom for Israel. But what comes next, the third one, the Ezekiel bread diet, is actually a step up from that in terms of how bad things get. So we're going to pick it up in verse 9 of Ezekiel 4. This is the start of the third sign act. Also, this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. Take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put them in a single container and make them into bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the number of days you lie on your side, 390 days. The food you eat each day will weigh 8 ounces. You will eat it at set times. You will also drink a ration of water, a sixth of a gallon, which you will drink at set times. You will eat it as you would a barley cake and bake it over dried human excrement in their sight. The Lord said, this is how the Israelites will eat their bread, ceremonially unclean, among the nations where I will banish them. But I, Ezekiel, said, Oh, Lord God, I have never been defiled. Remember, Ezekiel's a priest here. 
From my youth until now, I have not eaten anything that died naturally or was mauled by wild beasts. And impure meat has never entered my mouth. He, the Lord, replied to me, Look, I will let you use cow dung instead of human excrement, and you can make your bread over that. He said to me, Son of man, mortal, I am going to cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They will anxiously eat food they have weighed out, and in dread drink rationed water for lack of bread and water. Everyone will be devastated and waste away because of their iniquity. So just by actually picking up a Bible and reading this chapter, it is obvious not only that this diet is terrible, but that it's so terrible, Ezekiel actually cries out to the Lord Almighty and says, please don't make me do this. What's more, instead of being a better substitute for bread, the grains he cooks over, yes, excrement, is like the only thing they can manage to have because of the lack of bread and water that they would otherwise be eating. So if you actually want to use Ezekiel 4 as a God-given dietary magazine, then the only real advice you'd walk away with is to stick with normal bread. You see what I'm saying? The verse that they're stamping on their packaging, and I'm not even exaggerating this, it announces to an entire nation to a struggling, disgusted prophet that this is infinitely worse than normal bread. <laughs> but that's apparently not true. It's, it's apparently a unique combination of six grains and legumes that harvest benefits beyond what you'd normally expect from our breads. Go figure. Now, I want to do my best to give this company the benefit of the doubt. I mean, when you scan their website, they're not really claiming to be these special Christian spiritual dietitians, their About Us page says nothing, uh, any sort of Christian heritage or, or influence. It's just, we want to make super healthy food that, that tastes really good. And yes, they have their brands named after Bible verses for some of them, but maybe it's just to be clever. You know, maybe they're not trying to be deceptive or manipulative. You know, maybe, maybe food for thought Okay, we're, we're not saying this bread is God's prescribed bread for humanity, but hey, there happens to be a Bible verse that talks about some of our favorite ingredients. So let's just use that as our title instead of calling this wheat, barley, beans, lentil, millet bread. <laughs> but I don't think that's really a genuine possible motivation for this brand. First of all, because they also have a brand called Genesis 129, which advertises, quote, it's not every day that we can access exotic grains and seeds from all over the world, let alone some of the most nutritious and delicious, until now, that is. Inspired by the Holy Scripture, verse Genesis 1, 29, we at Food for Life have crafted a bread that pays tribute to the simple beauties of the world. And again, it quotes the verse. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. Genesis one twenty nine. end quote. So clearly they're trying to say, we looked at this Bible verse and giving some sort of general command for what we should eat that inspired us to make this ultra divinely sanctioned type of bread product that you can now buy. 
So I guess that must be what they're going for with Ezekiel 4.9.2. But you can also see this is in the rest of their advertising, too. They, they post a link to a blog about 15 reasons people are obsessed with Ezekiel bread. And, and it, it, you know, it says, if you're wondering why the bread's name seems formatted like a Bible verse, it's because it actually is one. According to you know, this verse, it says, you know, yada, yada. But to be honest, most of this investigation is kind of worthless because <laughs> even if we say Food for Life just happened to use a Bible verse that talked about the same ingredients, you have to ask why they would pick a verse that actually discredits their entire product unless they assumed that no one would know or look it up or really care. And that's the real clincher here, I think, is when we start asking those questions. How, how can this continue to exist for so long and continue to make sales? What is the assumption behind this product? What effect does it have on typical Christians in the organic marketplaces? Now, my real hope in talking about this isn't to destroy the reputation or sales of this company. It's to glimpse into a window of the way we think and shop and read the Bible and what our more careful reading of Ezekiel has to say about that. Part of the reason I think this brand of bread has been so successful is that we have this habituated instinct organically grown in the sermons we hear and Bible programs we see to to look for bite-sized, positive takeaways from everything we read in the Bible. This is something I was just talking about uh, with the church in a Bible study. And we're doing this sermon series through the book of Genesis, and we came to Genesis 34. And the chapter covers a really tragic story of the rape of Israel's daughter, Dinah, and the slaughter that his two sons commit to exact their revenge. Because the story covers a really sensitive and terrible subject like that, it's often listed among the so-called texts of terror in the Bible, and it presents this big moral dilemma for people. Is it wrong that Genesis 34 is in the Bible? How is that okay? What purpose could it possibly have? But one of the points I was trying to make when we were talking about this in, in, in that, that study on, on this chapter is that it only actually poses a moral problem if we're coming to the Bible with all these wrong assumptions about how the narratives of Scripture are supposed to work. People say things like, the Bible teaches polygamy. That's so wrong. You can't actually find a verse that says, go ahead and marry tons of wives. That's awesome. What they're doing is they're, they're assuming the mention of a detail like, Jacob had two wives— means that the author is endorsing that detail as a global practice. But narratives don't work like that any more than movies do. They're, they're subtle and artful and, and true stories, even while they're true stories. But we're not trained well as evangelicals to read and listen and share narratives, share stories. We're not used to listening for plots with conflicts and resolution. We look for Points like the old school three-point sermons that turned every chapter in the Bible into a classroom lecture with moral lessons. Which is great if you're reading an argument in a letter like Romans that actually might have three big points like that, but not if you're reading Jonah or Judges or Genesis 34. 
We've been trained to look for positive takeaway lessons in every page of the Bible, regardless of plots and conflicts and themes and genres, regardless of if we're reading James or Jeremiah, Proverbs or Ezekiel. And that's just as dangerous as the actual details of Genesis 34 or Ezekiel 4, because that mentality works against the grain of the vast majority of the styles of writing the Bible was written in. Okay, too many puns with the, the whole uh, organics thing to pass up here. But to, to, pa- to, to bring this back to the point of what we're actually talking about, a company, life, like a food for life, it can come up with a product called Ezekiel 4.9 bread, and we don't immediately investigate or hesitate because what they're saying is, look, this Bible verse from the Old Testament gives us a practical instruction for what to do. It is simple, straightforward, and I'm giving you immediate access to get in on it. And it will make you feel closer to God's plan for your life than if you keep buying regular old store bread. We say, heck yeah, sign me up. In other words, I think that line of reasoning and advertising works because it actually makes more sense to us than what Ezekiel 4 is actually talking about. We don't even want to look it up and comb through the prophecies. We want to take the end product of what we're trying to do when we read the Bible, that this company is just handing to us and cash in on it. An organic bread product citing a command from God to a generic you when you think about it, is very individualized. It's heavy on the self-improvement, completely independent of any longer reading that takes more than a couple of sentences, which in another day and age and place might be huge red flags. But for our day and age and place is actually pretty attractive. Maybe you think I'm really stretching this, but then you still got to provide your own answers here how can this product with a big Ezekiel 4.9 label on it continue to exist for so long and make money? What is the assumption behind this choice of a brand name? And what effect does it have on typical Christians searching for sandwich fixings? I think that we've been seeing in the book of Ezekiel so far that God is far more interested in challenging the status quo than he is in being used by it. This is not to say we should go out and yell at people and put up our picket fences, but it's probably safe to say that if our Bible reading and church experiences only ever tell us, let me take this thing you like or come across all the time and make it better, then we're probably not getting much of Ezekiel in our diets. And according to the Bible itself, which explicitly tells us all the pages are breathed out by God, it's necessary to live the Christian life. According to that Bible, we're grossly deficient in our needed balanced nutrition. Ezekiel bread and the mentality behind it is bad for you, spiritually speaking, even if it's more palpable and and positive or easy to swallow. All right, let me just talk about one more piece of Christian culture that intersects with Ezekiel before we wrap this up. Um, I didn't really know what else I wanted to talk about here, so I just searched through social media to find things related to Ezekiel. 
And one of the things I found was Ezekiel Bright. Another thing I found were these doomsday predictions and Bible quotes applied to current events. Not that that's especially new or surprising, but I just want to sit there for a minute as we think about the conviction behind the rebind, the things that we're seeing in Ezekiel specifically. Um, one article I had found online is uh, titled, uh, End of the World, Chilling Bible Passage Predicts Apocalypse After Face Mask Row. And the subheading says, The end of the world could be around the corner after the Bible prophesied the apocalypse following God's decision to hide his face from the exiled Israelites in the book of Ezekiel. And I, I had uh, told Stephanie about this when she was asking what I was up to with a straight face and everything, but she just burst out laughing. <laughs> I mean, it is r ridiculous. You know, maybe it's a spoof, but it didn't really come across that way, unfortunately. Um, I don't think too many of us struggle with making those kinds of applications as we're reading Ezekiel, but but maybe we do. Maybe maybe that actually sounds kind of exciting and inspiring to see the Bible explain and interpret something happening right now so explicitly and directly. But either way, we've got to ask, why do articles and Twitter posts and televangelist programs like this exist? What assumptions do they have about the Bible to be able to say something like that? How does it affect the people who read it and, and maybe don't know that Ezekiel is saying something else? And I suppose to take a step back and explain why I'm singling Ezekiel out for this, Ezekiel has a lot of material that some have called proto-apocalyptic. And what apocalyptic means when it comes to reading the Bible is not I am legend, zombie movie type stuff. It's a specific genre of literature, like we get in the book of Revelation. Uh, essentially, biblical apocalyptic literature peels back the curtain on our three, four dimensions to peer into the spiritual, cosmic, overwhelming realities that are at play behind the scenes. It's got a lot of symbols and visions that, that try to capture things that we can't really comprehend in three dimensions, but... It also paints the world in, in very black and white, polarizing terms at the same time. You know, there's the side of God and his, his redeemed people, and then there are the, the terrible forces of evil on the other hand. And that contrast kind of shocks you into thinking, oh man, there's no middle. Like, crap, I need to quit wishy-washing my way through life. It's all intentional. But anyway, we call Ezekiel proto-apocalyptic because it's, like, not really full-blown apocalyptic. It's like a horse and buggy or proto-car. It's, it's not really a car. You can't break it down the same way a mechanic can, but it's got a lot of the same features and purposes. The wheels, the transportation, and, and so forth. <laughs> I don't know why a horse and buggy is the first analogy I thought for this. I'm sure there's a million better <laughs> examples, but I don't have the time to question my strange brain. So that's what I'm going with. So yeah, Ezekiel has has parts that are proto-apocalyptic. Uh, you might have picked this up when we looked at Ezekiel's temple vision in uh, chapters 8 to 11. We saw a vision of someone marking the foreheads of the Lord's faithful followers, followed by this kind of overwhelming doomsday. And, and there's angels and all that. 
But a lot of the press comes from chapters 38 and 39 in Ezekiel. Uh, this is a over-the-top vision of the defeat of Gog, and Gog comes to represent the hostile nations of the world that set themselves up against God and against his people. And it's uh, it's from that kind of stuff that you get headlines that we had just heard about. You know, this this has to do with coronavirus, or or Gog must be Canada because it talks about hooks and fishing, and they like to fish. I, I don't know. So I should have explained all that before jumping into the news blogs. But yes, it's out there. This is sadly one of the most popular ways we see Ezekiel surfacing on the internet and in our conversations and in our culture. It, it's become part of the the raw doomsday material that people work with to to cut and paste and piece together all the special clues that crack the code of current events. So instead of just pointing out ways people have tried to do this with Ezekiel in the past year, I think it's more beneficial to take a step back and ask those underlying questions. Why do articles and Twitter posts and televangelist programs like this exist? What assumptions do they have about the prophet to be able to say something like that? And, and how does this affect the people who, who read it and maybe don't know any better? Well, this take on Ezekiel is similar to the last one, actually, in, in that they're both atomistic. They're both cut and pasty. Only, instead of enhancing something basic like health and nutrition, it takes the challenge to the status quo to a new extreme. It, it's, it, it's really also very individualistic and, and out of context by assuming that our year, 2020, out of all the millennia, is what Ezekiel really is concerned with. I mean, the rest of the poor schmucks just have to wait in line to see it happen like we get to. So, quite honestly, it, it, it's not like we have to overcomplicate and overanalyze every unfortunate reading of Ezekiel that comes out in the open. Whether it's bread or the apocalypse, just read the whole thing. If we honestly, if we honestly believe the Bible is super important and should shape everything about our lives. Why settle for just a verse in chapter 4 or chapters 38 and 39? To say, or, or rather assume, that Ezekiel is here to give us clues and codes to crack that interpret current events in light of the end of the world. At best, that gives us the sense that God is still in control and active in the history that we're watching unfold. Although, pretty much miss out on everything else Ezekiel has to say. But at worst, that actually deflects all sense of personal conviction and encouragement and challenge, sending the word of God outward when it's aimed at our hardened hearts. Using the Bible to piece together our very specific and very rigid blueprints of who's a bad guy and who's the good guys and why we don't have to change our minds or have an open conversation about it. As different as doomsday prophets seem from Ezekiel bread, I think those current event interpretations are so attractive for the same reasons. Because it actually feels so much more personal and so much easier to say this means this. And it's hand-delivered to your front door on the front page of your news. It's so much easier 
and more attractive than trying to understand the big picture message and structure of Ezekiel for 48 chapters. Or to think through the connections between the false prophets of Ezekiel's day and the things we come across in our favorite sitcoms and shopping malls. But if we can work through Ezekiel carefully, on his own terms, set aside the news for a minute, use the scriptures as our glasses for it instead of the other way around, and I don't think we'll really feel that excited about those prophecies anymore on the news blogs. Because we won't need to. Because that won't be the first time someone told us, hey, wow, check this out. This is how Ezekiel helps educate and change your life. I mean, we read that article about God hiding his face from the exiles in Ezekiel being fulfilled in COVID face masks, and it's pretty silly. But have you ever heard a pastor or parent or friend or youth minister talk about the significance of what that part of the Bible actually does mean? what it means for us. Not, not that that's super easy or quick to do. I totally acknowledge that. But if people are willing to comb through the prophecies of the Old and New Testament and think critically about them and, and, and try to put all the pieces together in an incredibly self-afflicting and complicated way, shouldn't we be willing to put the same amount of effort and thought into a careful reading of what these books of the Bible are saying on their own terms? I mean, isn't that easier? If we at all get the impression that the books like Revelation and Ezekiel are for those who are detached from society and from reality, for that matter, then it's not because those books actually give us that impression. It's because we've left it to the doomsday prophets to speak the loudest about them. Well, we just pick up a verse or chapter or two and leave it behind. I mean, someone pulled a verse from the Gospel of John and said it was actually a, a prediction of something President Trump did in office today. We'd go nuts. Because we know the Gospel of John, and that's not the point. Now, how awesome would it be if we could know the book of Ezekiel just as well? And we could add that to the core perspectives that shape our views on life and afterlife. All right, that's enough uh, newspaper stuff for today. I-, I hope that all this rambling about Ezekiel bread and doomsday prophets has gotten you to more than just chuckle, whether at the advertisers or at me. I-, I hope it's inspired you to latch on to the beauty and the impact of entire books of the Bible like Ezekiel, of the entire Bible itself, instead of the quick and flashy sound bites that get tossed out that unfortunately fall way too short of that message. What if the products and artifacts and headlines and Bible study curriculum that come from Ezekiel did more than just get us to buy something or buy into someone or some blueprint for current events? What if if we had worship songs that actually sang about the messages of each book of the Bible so we could sing what we read about and feel the emotion and feel like it's our own anthem and song. What if, what if we held a church potluck and fed everybody disgusting burnt toast? (laughs) And and then as they're revolted and shocked, we, we walk through the real Ezekiel bread, the real story 
and, and movement in Ezekiel from the probing, honest judgments to the lasting and honest hope. Well, I mean, if you're going to do that, at least have like a really good dessert or something. Call it the, the dessert of hope. I don't know. Uh, what if instead of looking for signs of the future and the features of Ezekiel's temple, we, we had a, a fundraiser for the youth group with an escape room that looked like the inside of the Jerusalem temple. And in each room, as you went along, things got worse and worse. And then the final key you needed, like the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of Yahweh kind of a thing, the attendant clue giver just comes in and takes it away before you can grab it. And that whole feeling of, what the heck? You know, this is the one part of the game that's supposed to be guaranteed and still work. Like, that can spark a conversation on just how big a deal it was that the, the glory of God left the temple and where it's going and when it's coming back. And <laughs> These all sound like terrible ways to make your church hate you or, or just amped up anti-jokes. You can, you can probably think of a, a lot better ideas than I can. But I'm not trying to just get into illustration mode on you. It, it would be amazing if we... Me, you, just everyone, normal people could, could have a hand in, in reshaping the stuff of our culture that engages with the Bible. If we can replace the Ezekiel bread and doomsday prophets with services, not products, but art and books and, and meals and conversations that just let Ezekiel shine instead of slicing it up. Man, what a witness we could have. How much more equipped for life and love and justice and humility and, and thinking and feeling and living would we be if, if those were the kinds of things in our circles that we could engage with. But until that day, we pray in the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thou eternal God, as we look within ourselves, we are confronted with the appalling fact that the history of our lives is the history of an eternal revolt against you. But thou, O oh God, have mercy upon us. Forgive us for what we could have been but failed to be. Give us the intelligence to know your will. Give us the courage to do your will us the devotion to love your will. In the name and spirit of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Rebind is made possible by the audio mastering of Andrew Horning's sound and the graphic design of Adam Anderson. If you found this stuff helpful, please spread the word. Follow us on social media. Leave a review on iTunes. Check out the Patreon page. And of course, tune in in October for a special interview. I'll see you then.